the existential threat to Christianity. The existential threat to Christianity. Identity crisis is the existential threat to Christianity. So let me just first by trying to define what I mean by identity, okay? So we can be on the same page. For me, identity is a sense of, of self, all right? It's a sense, sense of self, self that is durable, that is, you know, when we say a person has a core, a sense that you can find no matter what you're doing in life. It's almost like your signature, Right? That's what I mean when, I, when I'm talking about identity. Your identity is that sense of self that you have. What makes you different from me? What makes you unique? What makes you you? And alongside that, the second component of identity is it's a sense of value, a sense of worth. After all, if you have no sense of value and of, no sense of worth, what's the point in living, quite frankly? And I... I think part of our problem in the charismatic Christian church is we are so predominated or preoccupied with the sin issue. And yes, sin is a problem. Don't get me wrong. Sin is a problem. But I think we may have given a little too much attention to sin than, than is necessary. So, for instance, just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, many people assume that Jesus Christ, or in fact that the scripture says that Jesus Christ came to save the what? Finish it for me. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. That's, that's the sense that shapes our understanding of the Christian life and the Christian identity and the Christian purpose. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. And so, once you get born again, then therefore you have arrived. You have now reached a destination. Isn't that, isn't that so? The purpose for which Jesus Christ came has now been fulfilled. Because Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. What, what if I suggest to you that that scripture is actually not correct as I have just read it to you and you have echoed back to me. So why don't we go and check it out together ourselves. Luke 19 and verse 10. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. If you have it, would you please just put it up very quickly for me? KJV, whatever you have, it's fine. Well, no, no, I want KJV. Let's do KJV. Because that's, that's really the problem. You're going to find other versions will not quite state it like KJV states it. And I think this is important because it's really very central to our Christian life and to our identity. For, for the Son of Man is come to to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save not the lost. He came to save a thing. A certain thing that was lost. How ridiculous and how insane it is to even assume that you are lost to God. Think about it. If a person loses their child, we say that they're most reckless of all beings. I mean, if a mother goes home, I don't know what I'll do if my wife came home and told me that she's lost my child. I think most men will be the most 
your Christianity will leave you for a minute. If your, if your wife comes home and tells you that they've lost your baby, it's, it's an awful thing to imagine, even for us as human beings. And someone suggests to you and I that you're lost to God? What kind of God will he be? The Bible tells me that even the hairs on my head, this is how valuable I am to God. Even the hairs, I don't know the hairs on my head. But you are so valuable. I am so valuable to God that not even the hair of your head, since the day you were born, God knows where everything about, I mean, what kind of God would he be, quite frankly? Why would he send his son to come to save and to deliver you? So, no, no, no. You were not lost. Not to God. He knows exactly where you are. He knows who you are. He knows where you are right now. And so, no, sin is a problem, but sin is not the problem. So, let me just say this because I want to be clear. I'm not saying sin is not a problem. I'm saying sin is not the problem. See, what sin does is this. When we sin, it separates us from God, but it does not separate God from you. So let me say one more time. When you sin, what happens is that I then draw away from God because now shame comes to me. I have a sense of guilt. I know I've done something wrong, and I don't want to approach this father who is holy. But God hasn't left. He has not moved from where he is. As a matter of fact, his love for me and for you is so deep that even in sin, he's coming after you. He's chasing after you. He's looking for you anyways. That's why sin is not a problem. Not for God. Jesus hangs on a tree. And a man who the Bible describes as a killer, a murderer, a thief, an armed robber, didn't even ask him for repentance. He hangs on a tree. And Jesus says, today, after you get born again, after you repent of your sins, Today you shall be with me in paradise. All he had to believe was, all he had to do was to believe. And it was so. Yeah, sin is a problem. Sin is not the problem. So I want you to really understand that this idea and this preoccupation where every time we come to church, all we're looking for is how can I be a little less sinless? How can I sin less so that God will love me a little bit more? is what has really twisted our idea of who God is and ultimately has twisted our own sense of worth and our own sense of value and our identity is a mess, therefore. And sadly, unfortunately, we have no voice. We're like the culture that we're trying to change. And the culture has crept in into the church that you can't really tell the difference any longer between the children of God and those who are not necessarily the children of God. And so what I want to help us to do today is to help us to be realigned and come to us a place where we really understand why God didn't kill you right after you got born again. Why you didn't just go to heaven right after you got born again. Because if the purpose was to just seek and to save the lost, it would be ideal that right after you got born again, he would take you to go to heaven. Yes, because then you may sin and be lost again. See? So the ideal thing would be to immediately take you back to heaven. That's not what God did. Hallelujah to you, Jesus. See, culture has a lot to do with identity formation. Unfortunately, it's so salient that we don't even understand that it's culture that is defining us. And that after we get born again, even though we say and we mouth that we're citizens of heaven, 
that we really don't realize that we are still, to a large extent, allowing culture to dictate to us who we are. So I just want to do something for a second. Okay? Can we get the other microphone, please? I should have prepared you for this. Can someone, can Anusha please get a second microphone just right quickly? Yes, thank you, Pastor T. Rich, Richard, can you please get that microphone for me? So I just want to ask some of us a question. And I don't want you to think about it. Because if you do, if you process in your mind, and you give me an answer that you think I'm looking for, not only will that be dishonest, but you don't want to be dishonest on Sunday. <laughs> not in the house of God and in the presence of Jesus. Amen? 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 So this is what happens. When I say, what do you do, my brother? Give him the microphone. Just tell me, what do you do? If a person, if I meet you and I ask you, yeah, give it to him. If I just meet you, I say, what do you do? Respond to me. I'll ask you to explain yourself to me. No, 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 no. You would not normally not do that. See, now that's what I'm asking you not to do. See, because in a regular conversation, that's not how a conversation takes place. Amen? So what do you do? I work for AT&T. Amen. Amen. What do you do? What do you do, ma'am? I'm a singer. I'm a singer. What do you do, Jay? I'm a writer. I'm a writer. So that's typically the kind of answer you will get when a person says to you, what do you do? Usually, when we ask a question of what a person does, usually we go straight to identity. See, because I say, what do you do? And the person answers by identifying themselves. And we... Not, we don't realize it, but what's really happening is that our work, unfortunately, very often, defines us. Our work is usually so central to us that it defines us. It defines our identity. So when I, when I ask what you do, you answer with your being. I say, what do you do? You say, I am a, and so forth and so on. I will tell you how I suppose we should answer the question of what do you do, but I want to save that until later on. So let's just move on because I want to discuss how I think that the culture shapes us and incorrectly and inappropriately suggests to us who we are and give us some ideas as to how we can get ourselves out of culture and begin to properly and appropriately define ourselves. Amen? Now, in old and ancient culture, and in some cultures even today, usually a person is identified by their family. So, when, when they say, who are you? Or you say something like, I'm the son of, and so forth and so on. As a matter of fact, a really, really good example that I like is, they asked Jesus Christ, who are you? No, sorry. Jesus Christ was speaking. And some people gathered and said, wait a minute. Is this not the son of the carpenter Joseph? They didn't just say his name. They even defined him by his work. See? That's usually how it's done in ancient culture. And there's something about names that's really, really very powerful. And I just want to encourage those of us who are here today. Please be careful when you're naming your children. Please, you know, there's so much foolishness that's going on in how we're giving our names. I mean, you have a child and you go to Google to find out what you're going to call your own child. We laugh about it, but there are a lot of people who do do this. 
There's something incredibly powerful about names. I mean, there are beautiful names out there. Salvation. Revelation. Good news. Goodness. Thank God. That's a name. Praise God. That's a name. I don't know how many of you have heard this story. Praise God told me this story. For some reason, he was in the courts. And the judge says, what's your name? And he says, praise God. And the judge says, no. That's fine. But what is your name? He looks at the judge and says, praise God. The judge gives me a stern look. Yeah, because you know, he's thinking, you're playing with me. You and the courtroom, get serious. What is your name? The young man says, praise God, sir. <laughs> and the conversation went on until, you know, I mean, the judge finally go, wait a minute. This man's name really is praise God. There are great names out there. You know, and there's something about name that's really very, very interesting. And my prayer is that before the end of this message, that some of us will have a name change. And that some of us will begin to live up to our names. Because there are people, unfortunately, that have been called bad names that are actually living down to their names. But I'm praising God, I'm thanking God, and I'm believing God that many of us today, if we don't have a name change, will live up to our names. How interesting is it that the most gregarious human being in this church is named Greg? <laughs> Absolutely, think about it. This guy, if you know Greg, oh my goodness. He is the soul of a party. You are not having Greg around you and have a down moment. That's impossible. And his parents call him Greg. Isn't that something? You call a man Trump. What do you think he's going to do? All day long. On a serious note, Pastor Bank will tell you this. There's a little child when his parents named him Bankoli. Some of you may have heard that before, heard this story before. Bankoli actually means, come build a house with me. And when his parents named him Bankoli, little did they know that no, this man was not going to build physical houses, but that he was going to build spiritual houses of men and women unto God. That's how powerful a name can be. So take it when you're naming your children. And like I said, if you have a name that you're not living up to, today in the name of Jesus will be the day when we'll rise up to the fullness of our names. There's a story that's told in, 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 in Judges, I think, chapter 6, of a man, Gideon. That's a man who is, to me, it's probably the best example of a man who God called up to come to live up his, to his name. Because Gideon was scared and he was living in despair at the time when the nation was in such a serious mess, a serious crisis. And hiding and threshing corn. God called him, why are you hiding? Your name means mighty man. He says, me? Me? And there are many of us who are sitting here today that God has spoken to you or there's a prophecy that has gone over your name. Are you looking at your circumstance and your situation and say, how can these things be? As we're finding our identity in God, you find it's nothing to God. God said to Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1 and in verse 5, he says, I have known you 
But when did God know Jeremiah? Can you put that scripture on? Before I formed you. I didn't come to know you after you were born, Jeremiah. I knew you from before I formed you. Not only did I form you. I knew you before I formed you. In the womb, I knew you. Before you were ever born, I sanctified, sanctified you. And in your case, I called you to be a prophet. And you think there's something that would derail you from the call of this God? There was a man named Tassos. Sorry, man named Saul of Tassos. Whose daily preoccupation, this man's profession, his job, his nine to five, is to attack anything that carries the name Jesus on it. That was his own preoccupation. And Jesus meets him. If I'd met this guy, I would say, uh-huh, today I have caught you. Where are you going to go now? Is that what Jesus did with him? No, Jesus said, listen, all the gift that you have, all the talent, all this passion, I give them to you. You may be misappropriating it, but I give it to you. I make you as you are. Don't worry about getting cleaned up. Listen, if the lame had to walk to Jesus, he would never have been healed. He had to be healed first. Then he can walk to Jesus. Come as you are. Don't worry that you have all this load. It's okay. Amen? So in old traditional cultures, you will carry the name of, say, your parents, for instance. But I want you to see the distinction between what we do today and what they used to do back in those days. So in those days, I will be Sammy, the son of Badaki. And all of my life will be invested and vested in that. And please pay attention because there's a reason I'm going into that. I will tell you my story in a little while. Amen? But in modern day tradition, what they are teaching us and teaching our children in the United States today is to look inside themselves. Look for their own dreams inside themselves. Their own desires. And use that to figure out who they are. And determine their own identity. And many of these young people are lost totally. And when we meet them, we're trying to solve the sin problem. We're trying to clean the fish before we even catch it. And we have been very ineffective voice in the land. Amen? Amen. Go with me very quickly, if you will, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we're going to read from verse 1, 2, 3, and 11 through 15. John chapter 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up by some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep does what? The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep. How? And he leads them out. Verse 11 through 15. I need to get my glasses. I can barely see. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves and the sheep flees and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Just three things I want to go over very quickly as we begin to run this thing up. First, the Bible describes us as sheep. This is a concept that is not only foreign but completely rejected by modern culture. You know what sheep is? A very dumb, stupid animal. A sheep sometimes does not even recognize, even though it's hungry, you put its food in front of it, it does not even recognize that you have placed its food in front of it. This is divine insult when God calls you sheep. And he means it to be so. That you are a sheep. In my city where I come from, if you really want to insult a man, you say you're a goat. That's a terrible insult to call a man a goat. Jesus says, you're a sheep. It's completely contrary to what this culture is teaching your children. Which is that they have sufficiency. Which is that they know better. That they can look inside themselves and identify for themselves who they are. And begin to fashion and to... In old cultures, we didn't do that. Even when you will go to school, usually you will go to school because your father wants to precariously live his life through you. He wants, to be, he wants you to be the doctor that he was not. He wants you to go be the engineer that he didn't make it to becoming. You really didn't have a life of your own. You didn't have your own identity. And you dare not stray too far away from that because you know that what you're representing is not just your name, is the name that's before yours and the one that's before it and the one that is before it. That's the weight that is on your shoulder in those traditions. In Chinese culture, they don't have what you call first names. My friend, and some of you may have seen him here before, his name is Chang. Liu Chang. For years... I used to call him Liu because I was deceived by the American culture that says usually there's first name and then there's last name. And so I would be Sami Bedaki. And his name when he writes it is Liu Chang. And so I call him Liu. And then one day I called him Liu. And he looked at me and said, do you mind? Do you mind really not calling? That's a weighty thing. You know, when you call that, it just, it makes me feel like you're dissing me, like you're disrespecting me. And I'm looking at my friend like, why in the world would you say that? I mean, isn't that your name? But when I call him Liu, I'm calling to, to question and I'm, I'm belittling all the weightiness of the greatness that has preceded him in his mind, of his great-grandfather's. And all of their wisdom, their collective entity, their identity is completely locked up in that name. And how terrible it would be of me to just 
address him with that respect and honor that the name carries and deserves. That's the weightiness that is upon old traditions and today some traditions are still this way. But in Western culture and Western tradition, we think we know it all. So young people, not only should you look inside yourself, you should especially not listen to anybody else. Because you know, you just need to listen to yourself. Look within yourself. And you find your own identity. Jesus says, you're all sheep. We're all sheep. The second concept is, he says that we are named. And the third concept is that we are redeemed. Amen? I want to quickly suggest to you why this modern day culture and tradition of looking inside yourself and trying to find your own identity, not only is it not a good one, it's also not a sustainable one. So I'm just going to go through a few things. It is inconsistent. It's inconsistent because remember when I was defining for you what identity is, I told you that it is something, it's your core, it's what you are through all of your stages of development, right? Okay, if you're looking inside yourself to figure out who you are, it's inconsistent because you change. Isn't that right? Can you look back at your 20-year-old self and all the foolishness that you were doing? Imagine talking to that 20-year-old self. You say, you are such an idiot if you're talking to that 20-year-old self now. Someone said to me years ago, I can't remember, they said something like that in a man's life that there are three seasons, that there's the morning time. And in the morning time, you can do all the foolishness you want. You can act like a child and be foolish and be silly and so forth and so on because there is your afternoon that is following your morning time when you can clean up your mess. Your morning mess. You can clean it up in the afternoon. Amen? And yet there is your evening time that is coming. And in your evening time, you see you have an opportunity to clean up your afternoon mess. But the mistakes you make in your evening, you sleep with those. Amen? So it's inconsistent because you change. Even you change. If my wife was here, she would tell you that she's married to five men. All of them are me. I've been married 20 something years and I'm not the man that she married 20, 21 years ago. I know people who married people who were managing discotheques and then they turned pastors. (laughs) What is a woman supposed to do (laughs) when you marry a guy who was hip and cool? And doing all the fun things and partying all day long and drinking all day long. Well, in this case, he was not a drinker. But, you know, doing all this craziness. And then he just lays it on you and says, now I'm a Christian. What are you supposed to do with that? It's inconsistent. We change through time. And thank God for change. I don't want to be the man that I was 15, 20, 30 years ago. I was a foolish man doing stupid things. And hopefully you mature. So you change. So it's inconsistent. It's also incoherent. It's incoherent because many times you have dilemma inside you. You say, I love you. But you know what? My career comes first. How many people have heard that before? And you are torn. What should I do? Should I follow my career or should I stay in this family life? Even when you say to a person, I love you, I submit to you that until you get your identity corrected and adjusted 
and you stay in your lane. Even when you say I love you, you are, really, you don't. Here's what I mean by that. When I say I love you, well, let me use food because I like food. My favorite food, just in case, is plantain. Right? Amen. And if you want to make plantain for me, you know the plantains are like this. It's when it's almost spoiled rotten. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. If you're saying that, you haven't eaten it. I promise you. You lay that thing on beans. <sighs> oh, my God. That's the kind of food that make you want to slap somebody. I'm telling you. I love food. But what am I really saying when I say I love food? Is it really the food that I love? No, 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 no. I love what the food does for me. So it's not, no, no, I don't love the food. I love me and food becomes a way for me to express that. I'm really using the food. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so even sometimes when you say you love a thing, what you're really describing is how much you love yourself. Okay? So this is how coherent it is when you're looking inside yourself and say, I love a thing. There is an author in, I think it was with New York Times. He said, he has such a difficulty reading his own writings. Because, and I'm going to the third point now about why you don't want to look in yourself for defining your, or for finding your own identity. And the third reason is that it has a crushing weight. Because you have to do it. See, if you say that you're a great writer, now what should be a good thing becomes a crushing weight that you're unnecessarily carrying. Because even for you to read your own material becomes a problem. It's never good enough. Yes. You know what I'm talking about, right, Pastor Charles? You're always wanting to adjust it, always wanting to deal with it, always wanting. The first time I was asked to speak, I just couldn't do it. I would I had all of my thing ready and I would speak and I would rehearse it to myself and say, no, no, it's not good enough. Because my entire identity was tied up in that. And quickly, the fourth reason why this is not ideal is because it's also excluding. And this is why I want to spend a minute or two. When you're looking in yourself to determine your own identity, it's excluding because it's not really how much money you have that matters. If your identity is tied in your position and your possessions, it's how much more money than the other guy you have that really matters. If you think you're a great singer, wait until a better singer comes to town. You're living in Dakula, Georgia, and you think that you are the best trumpeter there is. And then you go to New York in the train station. A trumpeter who is playing and begging for money. Ten times better than you are. You hear this guy and your whole existence just take a hit. It's like you almost don't exist. Because all of your identity is tied up in what you do. Hallelujah. Jesus comes in. And gives us a way out. Praise God. Give Jesus a clap offering. Hallelujah. 
So I just want to submit to you that we all need to be named by someone outside of us. All of us need it. Even people who say that, you know, they're looking inside themselves to name themselves, looking into their own desires for finding an identity. Even when they do so, they're still looking for the accolades of men. They're really just shifting who is naming them. Because suddenly their friends and their peers start saying, yes, you're doing the right thing. So they're shifting the accolades of who names them to their friends. Somebody needs to name you. The question is, who should name you? What kind of person should name you? I am happy it is Jesus who named me. And I'm telling you, Jesus has your name. Jesus has your number. Jesus knows where you are right now. You may be going through a really tough time right now. He is not unaware that you're going through a tough time. He's totally not unaware. He wants to name you, as we just read from the scripture. There are many, many scriptures that talk about our new identity in Christ. Amen. Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, verse seventeen, uh, it says that we're a new creation in Christ. Galatians two and twenty says I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live now is now by the faith of the Son of God. First Peter two ten. I really like this one. He says, "Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who has now who has not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." 1 Corinthians 12 and 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And this is my favorite of all of them. Philippians 3 and 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, you are looking at a man who came from heaven by way of Kaaba. Nitete, thank you. It was you who said that to me for the first time ever. And I've never really forgotten it. And you should take that to heart. That's who you are. Your citizenship is of heaven. You are really a citizen of heaven. If I am a British citizen visiting the United States and I come in by way of New York, does that make me a New Yorker? What does that make me? I'm still a British man. I'm still a Brit. You are in the earth. The Bible says you are in the world, but you are not of the world. I am a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, I'm here to enforce the rule of my hometown. Heaven. And so I look to my father to name me. The identity that is robust, the identity that will stand the test of time is the identity that is not achieved but received. So Jesus Christ, before he ever did anything in his ministry, God looked down from heaven and said, I approve of you. This is my beloved son and I'm pleased with you. You haven't done jack. That's the identity that will stand through the test of time. That's the identity that will carry you through the rough times. That's the identity that will put you in your lane and give you confidence and the ability to fulfill purpose. That's the ability that will be able to fend off all of the temptations of position, of work, taking the place of your true person and your true identity. What a great thing it is for God to name you and to name me. 
Amen? There is no greater sense of worth and value than, is that, than that. You know, I don't know who said this, but it goes something like this. The praise of the praiseworthy is greater than all rewards. When a person you value praises you, even in this church, in this community, what does it do for you when Pastor Bank calls you out by name and asks you to come to the front? You know what it does for you. It gives you a sense of worth, a sense of value, a sense of personhood. Why? Because you value him. Because you adore him. It won't be quite the same if I called you out right now and say, come to the front, let's lay hands on you. Oh, it's nice. But if your father, Pastor Ban, calls you out, God's calling you out this morning. Amen. God wants to give you a new name this morning. God wants to help you to, identify, to, to find your real identity this morning. And he's got your name. Because we adore God so much, because we love him so much, because he carries our respect so much, he carries the most value when God gives you your name. Amen? Amen. Let me tell you my story as I wrap this up. Uh, this is a, about two years ago. I wrote the following. Confusion became my companion. Despair held me for ransom. The noisy, boisterous surroundings went silent and I was afraid. No one was near. I am lonesome, caught in the deep valley of shame where chaos was my only company. I desperately screamed, but no one heard the yearning of my soul. I want help. I need help. I can't carry this burden some weight. I don't want to carry on. This weakness paralyzes me. I'm sick from brokenness. How does a man wake up 51 years later unsure of his identity? My whole reference point is shaking. The ground of truth is shaking under my existential reality. What is really true? What is not? What new truths lay in wait for me to discover? Was I adopted? Was I even ever in the womb of the one? I, was I ever in the womb of the one I believed burst me? I want to, but I cannot stop. The head bombards my heart with a million questions, and I couldn't find a single resolve. So what's the point? No one cares. Maybe no one ever cared. What if it's all been a big, giant lie? Let me give you a background to this story. About two years ago, Pastor Man called me. And he said, Simon, you know, something is not quite aligned in your life. I have known you a long, long time. I'm paraphrasing what he said, of course. And you should be far ahead in life than you are currently. So there's something that is critically missing in your life. And I have prayed and I've saw the face of God on your behalf. And I want you to tell me your childhood story. 
And I looked at him. I said, you know, I think my child was normal, like, like any other child. Are you, are you sure? I said, well, you know, yeah, there was a little bit squirmish or a little bit of, you know, disagreement between my mother and my father. I recall very clearly that when I was about three years old and my father was not in the house. But that was not completely bizarre and strange. In that time, there are many, many families that both parents were not necessarily in the home. Amen? So I said, no, I don't think it was a big deal. He said, okay, here's what I need you to do. And I've got to say this to you. As many of you as are planted in this house, if this is really where God has planted you, I want you to know that your success is guaranteed. Even the problems you don't know you have, God will align your pathway. He will tweak whatever needs to be tweaked. He will bring to light those hidden things so that you can shake the shackles and take on your new name and take on your new identity and begin to walk the path of glory that you may give praise to the Jehovah who not only loved you but allow you to see today. Amen? So Pastor Banks says to me, I want you to go back to your, to your town, to your village, and inquire what happened. I'm telling you as it happened. He's sitting right here. I said, okay. September 2014. I get in the aircraft. I go to Nigeria. I come from a family of eight children. I'm the last of eight kids. Two boys, six girls. My older sister was long dead. Um, Pastor Larry's mom was my third sister's closest friend when she lived. She's dead now. She knows my family extremely well. So if I'm telling you a lie, she can vet what I'm saying to you. So I go to my oldest living sister, who at the time was about 71 no, sorry, 60, whatever. And I said to her, as I arrived in, in the country, I called her, I said, she, she lived in um, a city called Abuja, which is the capital city of Nigeria. I said, I need to see you. Where are you? And she says, well, I'm actually in a village, in our village. So I said, okay. She said, are you okay? I said, I'm fine. I get in the car and I go to my town. And I get there and, you know, we greeted each other and loved on each other and so forth and so on. And in the evening when it was quiet and she, it was just she and I said, I have come to ask you about my childhood. At this point, I can't honestly remember why I posed the question the way I did. I probably knew a little bit more at this time. Because I don't remember now why I asked the question like this. I said, is Badaki my biological father. And she looks at me like, what are you talking about? And I asked the question again. And she said, well, she started fumbling and started mumbling and started. And the answer was evident to me. Soon as that happened. And I don't know if you've ever been in a position like that before. 
At this time, I was 51 years of age. And my whole world, I remember like it happened yesterday. My whole existence just gave way under, under, underneath me. And I didn't want to leave. Because suddenly, nothing made sense anymore. All of my borders of truth, just, yeah, they were all broken. And so it was shortly after that that I wrote this because I'm asking, what is true? Who am I really? Eight children. And in 51 years, somehow, this secret was kept away from me. And I'm going through life thinking I am someone when in fact I'm not or I'm another. Needless to say that night, I didn't sleep a wink. I said, who is my real father? And she said, who it is to me. And my brothers and my sisters, I knew this man as a young man, as a child. My older sister, who currently lives in Washington, D.C., and I will go to his house ever so often to, to play. That's a recollection I have. He had two children who were the same ages as my sister and, my, and myself. And they were both male and female as well. Wilson was my age, and the lady was my sister's age. And we were very close friends as young people. So I said, that's your father. So I wake up in the morning, and I get in a car, and I went to the house. Oh, by the way, my mother died in 1980, and I hadn't been in the village for years. But I found a house, and I got in a house. And I went into the room. He was very old at this time. And... Um, and his eyes were dim. And I said, I greeted him. You know, I greet the way we greet. And he said, who is this? How do you answer that question? So I said, the son of, and then I named my mother. Now, my mother was very prominent in the village. And the place went completely quiet. He said, sit down. And I sat down, and, and he just came with this ferocious anger and just laid me out and laid it on me as to why I had waited so long to come to seek him out. And I have to tell you, it took all of the God in me to not speak. Because I'm looking at a man who I thought had done me the greatest wrong. Trying to correct me. A man saying to a son, why didn't you seek me? I thought it was fathers who seek their children. But I didn't say a word to the glory of God. And he goes on and on. And then when he was finished, I heard some of the things that he said, but he went through here and went out that way. 
And I looked him in the eye and I said, are you my biological father? He said, what? I said, are you my biological father? He said, I know there's a mirror opposite me. Is it there? I said, yes. He said, okay, come stand next to me. So I stood next to him. He said, look in the mirror and look at me. And I wish I can put a picture of he and I up. Because even at that age, the resemblance was as striking as can be. Ismail had many children. When I say many, I mean more than 20. But there were two of us. One is long dead. But there were, no, three of us. Who looked just so much like him. I took a photo with the other young man. If I show you the photo today, there will be no question if I told you he was my son. You know, what was strange about this whole thing was the whole town knew. Everybody knew. Everybody but me. So I just want you to put yourself in that position and think about the, how my world just collapsed in that moment. There was no need or no reason for existence for me. I wanted my mother so badly. I wanted to ask questions. I wanted to hear her reassuring voice. I knew my mother loved me, loved me but even that I was questioning. I, I just didn't want to leave. And in that moment, I, underst I understood how people who have been raped will feel guilty. I don't want to tell anyone when they haven't done anything wrong. What did I do wrong? Why was I carrying this weight? Because your identity is the center of your life. Whatever you hang that on, once it's moved out of space, you might as well not exist. I was devastated. But I am so grateful at the same time. Last week we talked about how crisis has two Chinese symbols, meaning both danger and what? And so my moment of darkness was also the moment of the greatest joy that I've ever experienced my entire life. It was such a turning point for me. And I know in a way that I could never have known, Pastor Bank, that God loves me. But for that, I never would have known how deep the love of God is for me. And so you may read in the scriptures all the things that I've just read to you, that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. And for many of us, this word has not taken flesh yet. For some of you who are going through a really hard time, maybe you have similar experience to mine, and you're trying to find your identity currently, I want you to know God loves you. And that's why he has sent me to you. You may be going through a crisis that's completely unrelated. And you find yourself following a certain pattern. Going from a bad boyfriend to a bad boyfriend to a bad boyfriend to a violent boyfriend. is because you have no idea who you are. You don't have a sense of worth. You don't have a sense of value. You don't have a sense. You don't have a core. 
You're lost like I was lost. And so this man said to me, Whew. He said the following words. He said, I have been carrying your blessing in my mouth. I promise you, those were his words verbatim. I didn't add to it, and I didn't remove from it. God, you see me if I'm not telling the truth. How is it possible that an instruction my spiritual father would give me out of the blue will lead me to a place where I will find alignment and purpose and my identity will take on a new meaning. He says, I've been carrying your blessing in my mouth. Come, Neil. He was 92 years old. And I knelt in front of him and he laid his hands on me and blessed me and said to me, no longer will the things that have been difficult for you be difficult anymore. And I was... Obviously, I mean, I was wailing at this moment. But I know God loves me dearly. And even after that, it was the hardest thing ever. I couldn't share this with my wife for weeks. Of course, I immediately shared it with Pastor Bank. And, you know, we prayed together. And that was also another beautiful moment. But I would come back and he would call me from time to time. How are you doing? And it was hard from day to day, I promise you. Some days will be good. Some days it will just flood back all together into my mind. And Satan will try to tell me I'm nobody. <laughs> and I would, and I couldn't share it with Sable. Until one day I laid in bed and I was just, again, it flooded my heart. And we're just laying there and I just started wailing and crying. And she said, what's going, what's wrong? And then I opened up and I shared with her and, and she said to me, I don't care if your last name is Jack or Jill or... <sighs> I have to tell you, I became a new man that day, literally. I've been walking with my shoulders high, my head straight, completely assured of the amazing love of God for me. You can't tell me God doesn't love me. You can't shake me from wanting to love. Because now I can apprehend as I have been apprehended. I know why he saved me. I know why he delivered me. That peradventure, even as I speak today, 
that some of you may be delivered from your anguish. From the terror of life. From the lie of Satan. That has told you you're nobody. That has encapsulated all of your identity in your role as a spouse. Even. And when your husband says something to you, it just goes through to the core of your identity and it messes you up. Or your identity is tied up in your job or in your business or even as an artist, a singer, whatever you are. And if someone would dare criticize that work, it cuts through your heart. That's not who you are. You are the child of the most high God. You didn't become real to him when you came to the earth. He said, before I formed you, before you ever existed, I knew you and I placed you in your mother's womb. I was deliberate where I placed you, Sammy. I was deliberate in placing you in a certain place at a certain time. And if you would align with this God, if you will agree with him today, you will be a new man. You will find a new identity. You will live a life that you thought was not possible. You will go places that you didn't think existed. You will speak a new language. You will speak differently. We've been told in this place that our identity should cause us to start speak, to speak differently. But because these things are so not real to us, that really doesn't happen. So I said I was going to tell you at the end, when someone says, what do you do? I want you to reply like Jesus replied. The next time somebody says, what do you do? When somebody asks you, what do, what do you do? Here should be your response. That which I see my father do. That's what I do. That's what I do now. You can't afford to leave a moment's notice outside of your connection and your connectivity with heaven. Every waking moment you do that, you are lost. And your pathway for life and for living and for finding joy is crooked to that extent. Because without him, you can of yourself do nothing. And whatever you do, is not only useless and meaningless, it's causing you pain and harm and hurt and it's taking you away from your own lane. Jesus wants to name you. He says, I'm the shepherd. And he's not just any shepherd. He's not just coming arbitrarily and saying, I want to give you a name and call you Tosin. No, 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 no. I died for you. I redeemed you. So I have the right to call you a name. Your husband can name you. Your wife cannot name you. Your children cannot name you. And even for those of us who are parents, when we're naming our children, we better hear from God. I think it was in Luke chapter 1. As this young man was about to be named, they wanted to name him after his father, Zachariah. Let's look, go there very quickly as I round this up. Is that Luke 1 and 47? 
Thank you, Jesus. Verse 59. No, I want Luke chapter 1. Can you please put that on the screen? Luke chapter 1. Verse 59. But go back to verse... Yeah, actually start from uh, 47 for me. Luke, Luke 1 and 47. Uh, no, go to 55. Okay. Is that the one? What am I? What's this? That's not what I want. Luke 157. Thank you, Pastor Bank. Yes. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that it came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, Look what they said to her. Why are you going to name this child John? Where is the name John from? There's no one. No one in this family has been called John. We name them after their fathers. Verse 60. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father, what he would have called him. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. If you're in this place, all eyes closed, all heads bowed. And you're struggling with your identity for whatever reason. Tied up in work. Tied up in your art. Tied up in even your life as a mother or as a spouse. Even as a ministry worker. It's tied up in titles. Tied up in possession. It's tied up in positions. That's not the God way. And I want you to just speak to God now. And ask him to give you a new name. And make a commitment. To look unto God. To shape your life. To look unto God to give you. An identity that is both robust. And can stand the test of time. Please don't take this casually. So we're going to pick up that prayer from Sammy in a minute. But what I don't want you to miss, 